Boy. Good morning, Applewood family. I, I'm going to be honest. Um, I have not been that excited about palm branches in years. And uh, the fun came from the deliveries. It was, it was so much fun getting out Friday, a little bit on Saturday, and delivering juice and palm branches. I hope, I hope all of you got them. Um, I felt a little criminal-like, uh, like, you know, we were kind of breaking out of jail and doing something that we weren't supposed to, but gosh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. So welcome to this Palm Sunday. These are challenging days, and uh, I am grateful, as inept as I am when it comes to uh, technology, I am so grateful that we can we can virtually be together in this way. So it is it is one of the blessings that we can count in these days. So let's pray together, and then we'll uh, we'll journey into Palm Sunday for a bit. <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to celebrate our King on this day, King Jesus. Uh, we are reminded, as Justin commented this morning, that you, our God, are not surprised by anything. We find ourselves in such challenging days, and there is great comfort, even in those times when we fear and we feel lots of uncertainty, your spirit and your word call us back to the truth that you are God, that you reign over this world of ours, that this pandemic that we are living in the middle of has not taken you by surprise. And though, God, we don't understand um, your purposes at times like this in the world and how you uh, choose to, to use this, we want to be people who respond uh, positively to what you are calling us to. We understand that in difficult times, all through the history of your church, you have called your people uh, to, to live boldly, to live without fear, to be people who, who live for the glory and the praise of you, Father, of you, Lord Jesus, exalted high and lifted up, and for you, Holy Spirit, who indwell us and empower us to be your people in these days. May we be that for your glory and for your praise. Forgive us for those places where, where we just naturally shrink back. Uh, help us to give attention to what you are calling us to in those times when worry sets in and, and fear regarding what next and what does tomorrow look like and where will we be in six months all of those things that I know I have experienced in these days. Holy Spirit of God, you who indwell us, your people, uh, strengthen us and empower us to, to rise to the occasion in those moments, to be people who live in the circumstances but live above them because you are present and empowering us and you have us. You always have us and for that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I can't hear any of you, but uh, just feel free to, you know, shout amens and those kinds of things. Um, I hope you all did get your, uh, your, your palm branch and uh, your juice yesterday. We're going to conclude this morning with communion.
so I want to give you a little bit of history that, uh, that leads us up to that first Palm Sunday celebration, and then I hope will lead us into communion as God's people this morning. And a lot of this information you're probably going to be familiar with. Uh, the Jews in first century Palestine, they wanted a Jewish king. They wanted a Jewish king who would take seriously their position in life as the people of God. And that is probably an understatement. They were living in the land that God had given to their ancestors. And for as long as any of them, the first century, had been alive, they had not been free to live under a king who was pro-Israel. They had been living in a kingdom that was dominated by outsiders. The last Jewish king in Jerusalem was almost 600 years before that time. Zedekiah was his name, and he led a revolt against the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Uh, that was the end of Zedekiah, and that was the end of the nation's freedom. Well, not too many years after that, uh, probably within 100 years, uh, came the Persians. The Persians crushed the Babylonians, and they took over rule of Israel. Following the Persians came Alexander the Great and his Greek armies. They crushed the Persians, and they took over the rule of Israel. The Romans came next. The history of the Jews for all those 600 years was just that of oppression, oppression, oppression. The Romans early on <clears throat> installed Herod the Great as a puppet king, and he reigned for about 35 years. He was, you know that name, he was the ruler who ordered the slaughter of all the Jewish boys, two years old and younger, around the time of Jesus' birth. Before his death, he divided his kingdom into three regions, giving one to each of his sons. History tells us they were horrible men, like their father. His son, Archelaus, who ruled the region of Judea, where Jerusalem was located, began his reign by slaughtering 3,000 influential people of the day. Evidently, the apple had not fallen far from the tree. The reason I tell you all of this is because Palm Sunday is one of those, those familiar stories. It's recorded in all four Gospels. We could easily miss the significance of what Jesus was doing because it's so familiar. And if we don't see it through the lens of the passionate political expectations that Jesus had stirred up among the inhabitants of Palestine. And we've seen that, haven't we, through our, our journey in Mark. Jesus, just by virtue of who he was, what he said and what he did, he fueled a desire in people, a hope for a new earthly kingdom and for the freedom, finally, for the freedom of God's people. And I, I couldn't help thinking this week how many of us, at least in some way, can, can relate to that sense with this pandemic that's going on around us. Though our oppressor is microscopic, 
we, we can't see it with the human eye. We feel its presence and we experience its presence in one way or another everywhere that we are. We don't get to live the life that we want to, right? We, we don't get to live the life of our choosing in these days. And, and I just think that on a practical daily basis, we are, we are ready for something new. I don't know about you. I'm ready for this to be over. Well, that is very much the way that many of the people in Jerusalem felt. Many of the adults in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, they had lived their entire lives under Herod the Great and his sons. Psychos who were puppet kings, primarily concerned with pleasing Rome and thus preserving their own lives. They had little concern for the common folks who lived under their rule. And it's quite likely that many who were still living in Jerusalem and those in the surrounding vicinity in Judea had witnessed the slaughter of those 3,000 people by Herod's son, Archelaus. So with the Jerusalem political climate in mind, we're going to look at Mark's Palm Sunday account together and we'll see some of the things that I think would have fueled a hopeful fire in the hearts of the people who were living there. But I also think that there is a, a subtle nuance in this very familiar story that came to life for me this week as I, as I read and as I prepped and, and just thought more about the passage. And, and that, that nuance became the lesson for me. And of course, I'm hopeful that it, it will be a lesson for you. So take a moment, uh, find your Bible, Find Mark chapter 11, and we are going to read together the first 10 verses. I'll give you just a moment to, to find that. All right, everybody found Mark 11? All right, let's read together, shall we? As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! 
my sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. So let's look at some of the details that I think bring this setting to, to life in the way that it would have for those in first century Jerusalem. First of all, consider Jesus' mode of transportation. Now, with the exception of a few boat rides that we have seen here and there throughout Mark's gospel on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus has walked everywhere. Now that he's going to Jerusalem, by the way, the city where he has not been much at all, he decides to ride a donkey. Now, not just any donkey, but a young one, a colt or a foal that has never been ridden. And tradition in that day understood an unridden animal, be it a donkey or a horse, as something that was worthy of royalty. Important people rode unridden animals. He sends two of his disciples to get it anticipates that there will be some resistance from the owner, and of course there was. They gave the owner the response that Jesus had told them. It all happens as Jesus said it would. I want to suggest to you that this, my friends, is a deliberate setup by the one who is in control, though nobody really knows that yet. Now, I want you to make a note of two Old Testament messianic texts. You can just jot them down. I'm going to read them quickly for you, but you can go back and look at them if you want in their context. The first one comes from Genesis chapter 49. You remember uh, Jacob had, had moved to Egypt, and he is going, he knows he's going to die soon, and so he calls his sons to gather around, and he blesses them, these verses are part of his blessing upon his son, Judah. He says this, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the one comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Rabbinic tradition for centuries had associated the coming of the Messiah with the, the riding of a colt, a donkey's foal, that at some point had to be untied in order for the Messiah to ride it. Zechariah is another text Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey as a royal ride dates back to King David, his son Solomon. It was considered a symbol of peace. Solomon rode a donkey at his coronation. But interestingly enough, scholars believe, as we look through Scripture and as they look at other old ancient texts, 
They believe that many of the Hebrew kings after David preferred horses. They preferred stallions, which of course were always identified as a symbol of, of victory and, and human accomplishment. Jesus, in this specific instance, is identifying himself with the kingdom of David, the lineage of Judah from whom the Messiah would come. So tell me, do you think people recognize that? Evidently, they did. Because consider, too, the shouts of the crowd. What is the word we associate with Palm Sunday? Hosanna! It's an ancient Hebrew expression that means save. The people are crying out, save, save, save. And the plural pronoun is implied, save us. Save us, Jesus. Save us from what? Well, they weren't saying because there were authorities all around, but it's save us from the oppression that we experience under the hand of these stinking Romans every single day of our lives. And, by the way, uh, what city was it that Jesus was entering? Oh, yeah, that's right, Jerusalem, the ancient city of the kings of Judah, the city that had pretty much been avoided by Jesus in his ministry life, I think for the very reason of what we see going on here. Oh, and just one more thing. It was time for the annual Passover celebration. Thousands of people from all over Judah traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. The population of, Jer of Jerusalem was never larger than it was at Passover time. And Jesus, the one whom we have seen many times in Mark's gospel, trying to avoid crowds, the one who would, who would hush those whose lives he had changed. They wanted to go and talk about him and tell about his miracles, and, and he would tell them, don't tell, don't tell, don't talk. This is a sudden and dramatic change from the Jesus that we have seen traveling through Palestine. Why is that? I think, simply put, because the time has come. Jesus is intentionally moving toward the event for which he was born. And do you remember what the salvation, excuse me, what the Passover celebration was, was about? God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. God delivering his people from bondage to foreign oppressors. My brothers and sisters, this is a celebration that is just dripping, loaded with messianic expectation. And I think the sociologists referred to something called, called mob mentality, where momentum just begins momentum and breeds momentum, and it just grows and grows and, and becomes frenzied. I think mob mentality has taken over. This, this is, this is craziness. And here's the thing that I find truly remarkable. Jesus set it up. And it seems to me that he has deliberately provoked the crowd's reaction 
by his actions. And, and I don't mean provoked in any sense of it was wrong. I just mean provoked as in purposeful. In his actions, he knew the time of the year. He knew the city. He knew the messianic prophecies about the donkey. And the result is a Super Bowl victory celebration. So, I have a neighbor question for you this morning. Of course I do, right? I want to, uh, I want to ask you what is going to seem like a no-brainer kind of a question. Uh, give just a, a minute's thought to it, if you would. And uh, if you're with someone this morning, ask them what they might think. And then, as Justin said earlier, we'll, we'll try to get a few responses. I'm, I'm not sure how I will navigate that, but I'm trusting those who know. So here's your, what will seem like a no-brainer question. Tell me, where are the 12 disciples while all of this is going on? Where are the 12 disciples in the midst of this madness as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Yes. Teresa, where do you think they were? <laughs> My wife thinks she has the answer. So, Justin, do we have any responses? Nobody's raising their hand because it's a no-brainer, right? All right. Well, let me tell you Sharice's response. She thinks the disciples are right next to Jesus. And I have to say... I agree. They, I'm guessing that they were the closest to Jesus, surrounding him, loyal to Jesus, but their hearts were caught up in the, the excitement, the, the nationalistic, messianic expectations of the crowd around them. And this, my friends, is where the lesson took shape in my heart this week. To be honest, I'm not surprised at the response of the crowd. Why would be? Given everything that we have seen about this setting, why would they not be just crazy, excited? Those who knew anything about history and, and the Jews for centuries have been a people who know their history. Many know the Torah, and they teach the Torah, and the history uh, that, that envelops the Torah. So given everything that we've seen here, of course they're crazy excited. But we, on this journey through Mark, with Jesus, we have seen so many lessons, it seems to me, and I've shared that with you, that are aimed at the 12 disciples. At this point in the gospel, we know that Jesus has told them three times that he must go to Jerusalem and die. 
He has mentored them and he has taught them much more than anyone else about himself. Planting in their minds the truth of the kingdom of God. And then he has lived out, he has fleshed out those values before them. Oftentimes challenging them and their their predispositions and their judgments of certain people and categories of people. What we also know is that in just a few days, many of the people who are in this mob scene in Jerusalem, many of those in the crowd who are clamoring for Jesus to be their Messiah King for whom they have longed, they will be calling for his death, many of them. From Hosanna to crucify him in less than a week. Now, I understand that this may be totally unrealistic and, and maybe I'm, I'm pushing things too far here. But it occurred to me this week that this familiar Palm story experience, the one that we all know so well, it was a first for those 12 disciples. And that's when it dawned on me. I think that this is another lesson for the disciples. It is an opportunity to learn and even demonstrate, maybe demonstrate that they get it, that they understand, that they, they have learned from Jesus that there is a clash between earthly values and the longings of, of, of people who live in earthly kingdoms there is a, there's a clash between those and the values of the kingdom of God and what Jesus is introducing as a new kingdom. Not a new earthly kingdom, but a new kingdom. None of the Gospels record any of them trying to correct the crowd. I know, that's probably a ridiculous idea. But they could have. They could have, oh, no, no, no. No, no, listen, listen, everyone. This, this, is, this is not all that it appears to be. This is not exactly what you think this is. He's going to die soon. He's going to die soon. Listen to us. He's come here to die. We're not sure exactly why, but he's told us three times, and it has to do with the kingdom of God and, and not the kingdom of our father David which is one of the chants of the people as they are coming in mass to the city of Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the kingdom of our father, David. You see, the disciples have been confused all through Jesus' life. And so, why not now? And I'm not suggesting that they were part of the crowd that would soon be calling for his death. But do you remember when Jesus went to trial and his death sentence was pronounced, the disciples deserted him. In his greatest time of need, they ran. And Peter, we know his story well, when confronted about being a follower of Jesus, 
denied him. Okay. Having said that, and probably sounding a bit harsh about it, which I don't feel harsh, I want you to know that I do give the disciples the benefit of the doubt. I really do. Maybe you aren't feeling that badly toward them at all. I mean, after all, these are pre-Holy Spirit days, right? It wasn't until after Pentecost when the spirit of the resurrected Jesus fills their lives that they turned into people who got it right. And they started living in the power of God in their lives, living into and living through the power of God in their lives. And there is no mistake about who Jesus is and the reason he came into the world. Boy, the first, first few chapters of Acts record for us a Peter that we didn't know before the resurrection and Pentecost. So here's my lesson, brothers and sisters. Simply put, we don't have an excuse. I don't have an excuse. You don't have an excuse. We are living in post-Pentecost days. And the same Spirit who filled the Twelve and many others, that same Spirit has filled those of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ and claim to be His followers. And in the same way that the Spirit clarified for them what salvation in Christ means, he also can do for us, for us who have the entire biblical narrative, all of the Old and all of the New Testament, which, which includes and is so clear in its teaching on salvation and Christology, who Jesus was and his life and the reason for his death, the celebration of his resurrection. We know all of that. So, as we, as we approach communion this morning, let me remind you of what I think are some important things that we know that make it different from those who didn't on that first Palm Sunday. Those first century Jews wanted a king that would bring them as, as a people group in the world. He, they wanted Jesus to to put them back in a place of prominence as the people of God. He wanted them to esteem them as the people of the world. Jesus, Jesus came to make people prominent, but not just the Jews. He is a king that makes all who put their faith in him prominent. Prominent in a way that none of us could ever imagine. He makes us children of God. Wow. The king who came to make us children of God. The Jews wanted a powerful king who would set them free from foreign oppression. As I said earlier, that's all they had known for 600 years. Foreign oppression. 
Jesus is a king that comes to set them and us a free, a free from, from oppression, but, but it's not a foreign oppression. It's an oppression that, that we inherit by birth. The oppression, and as Paul calls it in Romans, the bondage of sin. Jesus is indeed a powerful king who frees from oppression. He has freed those who are his people, those who have placed their faith in him. They are free to live outside of the bondage of sin and its oppression. That, that is the power of God on display in our king. They wanted a powerful king that the world would recognize as supreme. In some ways, I expect that there were some mixed responses to, to the donkey's colt that day as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Certainly, there was, there was much celebration, and there were those who recognized it as the ride of royalty, but, but oh, that donkey is not the, it's not the stallion. It's, it's not the image that they, had, that they had grown used to and had seen as the visiting armies marched through Jerusalem through the centuries. Those kings, those conquering rulers, they rode stallions. They wanted a powerful king that the world would recognize as supreme. Jesus didn't exactly call that kind of attention to himself, but we know that the donkey also represents a character of peace and humility. And our King Jesus is powerful enough to conquer death and humble enough to conquer it in the only way that it could. Jesus, our King, conquered death by dying on the cross. And in doing so, he gave notice to all the powers of darkness and evil that their days are numbered. Brothers and sisters, we, we live in a world that needs to know our Jesus. You know that. I know that. It has always been that way. And, and that is the mission that he has given us. In the power of the Spirit who indwells us, the resurrected Jesus, His Spirit, the Spirit of God. These are days, I think, in which we want to be purposefully, very intentionally clear about our King, who He is and, and who He is not. He came to die for our salvation. He came to save us from ourselves and all the things in our hearts and all the things in society that call to our hearts that ultimately elevates ourselves. Jesus, Jesus is a king that saves us from those very natural human differences that exist. We've talked about that as we've seen the stories of Jesus through Mark. We we fear 
those who are different from us. We are suspicious from those who, who don't look like us. Sometimes we fear and feel disgust towards us who, those who do look like us and speak our language, but they believe different things. Jesus, Jesus is a king that saves us from petty, ethnic, and nationalistic tendencies. Those things that create a sense of us and them. He gives us the power to stand strong against those things that divide people so that in his power we live before others the values of a kingdom that is far better than any of us has ever seen on this earth. And finally, I would just add that Jesus saves us from foolish expectations of, of earthly glory. Foolish expectations that, that somehow this world in which we live is, is going to be a better place. It's really not. But he has come to, to make possible for us entry into life in his kingdom now and for all of eternity a place that is, that is far better than any human can imagine. And he did that with power that was effected on the cross. It is a power, the power of our God and the power of our King that conquers through love and sacrifice. Amen. I want to give you just a, a couple of moments to, to find your, your bread and your juice or your wine, whichever you are choosing to use this morning. Take a couple of minutes and, and get those things nearby, and then I'd like to, to lead us together in sharing communion with one another, those who we might be with. Brothers and sisters, I have said at different times throughout our journey in Mark's gospel that Jesus' call to deny self, take up our cross, and follow him is at the heart of his kingdom message. And on this Palm Sunday morning, which marks the beginning of the last week in his earthly life, that he would do for those who were there and those of us who have followed them, that he would do for us the very thing that he challenged us to do.
Jesus denied himself. Jesus took up his cross and he died for our sakes. He surrendered his life in all that he was to the will of his Father. And so it wouldn't be long before those first disciples would celebrate their last meal with Jesus before his death. And at that meal, Jesus took the bread and he, he broke it. And he said to them, this, this is my body broken for you. Do this often and remember me. Can you imagine Jesus feeling in his spirit, ah, oh, these guys who so easily forget what I have taught them, these guys who so easily forget what I've poured into their lives, oh, remember me, remember me, and remember what lies ahead in the life that I have called you to. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, he took the cup and he said, this new covenant is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm always fascinated by that. We proclaim his death and not his life, his life after. Of course that's important, but it is, it is his death that secured for us righteousness and a standing with God as his children. So wherever you are and whoever you're with, uh, share this time uh, together in communion. We made it. We made it through our first virtual service together. My suspicion is... Unless God chooses to intervene in a miraculous way, this won't be our last. For example, we have a Good Friday service that we want to gather in this way and share together uh, this Friday night. So watch for information in your email to, uh, to give you more uh, details about that. Uh, it starts at 7 o'clock. You'll want to sign in a little bit early, as you have done today, and uh, we will celebrate that uh, incredible night and sacrifice of our Savior. But in the meantime, as you walk through this uh, Holy Week, may the joy of the Lord, the joy that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have in themselves together, may the joy of the Lord be your strength. May His strength give you, give me as His people, um, boldness, courage, uh, certainty as we live in these pandemic days for the glory of our God and the good of others. Amen. So that is officially the end of our service, and you are welcome to uh, virtually hang out as long as you want and uh, chat with one another. Blessings on you, brothers and sisters. This has been fun. Thank you for coming.